I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on January 3rd, 2022. Episode 48, A Return to First Principles. Happy New Year. As we start into the year 2022, and especially with the abandonment of them by so many, it seemed the perfect time to return to first principles, to remind ourselves many of the key foundations upon which the nation was built. The underpinning of these principles was a belief in man's inherent God-given right to determine his own destiny, free from oppression, specifically free from the oppression of government. This episode will be a short, basic revisiting of America's first principles as we dive into the new year to remind us of what always should be in the back of our minds when observing and participating in our government. The formal recitation of our first principles is found in the Declaration of Independence, which set out the Founders' desire to create a novus ordo seclorum. This Latin phrase, the motto of the new United States, is found on the nation's seal. Contrary to many of those who wish to cast our nation's founding as some grand global conspiracy by men who actually did not seek freedom, the creator of our great seal explained its true meaning. Charles Thompson, assigned with the creation of the nation's seal by the then Continental Congress, added this phrase, as he himself explained, to, quote, signify the beginning of the new American era. Seclorum, translated from Latin to mean ages, generations, or centuries, does not, though many attempt to make it so, indicate a secularism in our founding. Nor does the motto indicate some attempted new world order. No, our founders adopted this motto to indicate a new era of freedom and self-determination. Thomas Paine in 1776 recognized the importance of this unfolding new American experiment when he wrote in Common Sense, the cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Though the phrase seems a given in today's world, the statement that all men are created equal was novel, that we each own the fruits of our own labor, that we must consent to be governed, 
and that any government should serve only through representatives of the very people who have consented to such governance, all combine to form a unique system in society never before experienced and never yet fully emulated. That we are each born with certain rights that cannot be forcibly taken from us by any government opened the door to a concept of freedom, and with freedom comes personal responsibility. Where we are free to act for ourselves, we are also subject to the consequences of our own actions. Freedom, it turns out, and which our founders understood, is not free. It is a constant battle between human nature and righteousness. But in putting pen to paper, in memorializing in writing the very principles that would govern America, our founders sought to preserve the liberty for which they fought in founding the new American era. To begin to understand America, it is critical to review the Declaration of Independence and to consider many of its specific proclamations. Perhaps most important are the self-evident truths recognized in this document. As it states so clearly, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. From this preliminary statement that preceded the list of grievances with the king, we are told that natural law instills in each of us certain rights to determine our own destinies, each of us equal to the other, and that such rights include the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is also here that the principle of consent of the, governance, consent of the governed and self-governance are also found. Note that the pursuit of happiness does not guarantee happiness, but only the right to be free to pursue it. The key first principle set on the Declaration of Independence is that of individual liberty. The uniqueness found in the American principle of individual liberty is that it did not come from some grant of it from those in power, but instead recognized liberty as a pre-existing, a pre-existing condition, the natural condition, from which power is only provided by those who use their own liberty to grant it. As James Madison wrote in his essays for the National Gazette in 1792, in Europe, charters of liberty have been granted by power. America has set the example of charters of power granted by liberty. This revolution in the practice of the world may, with an honest praise, be pronounced the most triumphant, triumphant epic of its history and the most consoling presage of its happiness. You see, without individual liberty, the American era never exists. From the root of individual liberty, the framers crafted, crafted a government, as set out in the United States Constitution, that was one of limited powers. Limiting the authority of government is a principle, and perhaps the most important principle, for reigning in the natural tendencies of any government and the officials in charge of it. Arguing for ratification of the Constitution, James Madison explained in Federalist Number 48, It will not be denied that power is of an encroaching nature and that it ought to be effectually restrained from passing the limits assigned to it. This understanding of the need to place clear limits on governmental power was consistent with the other founders' concerns, as Thomas Jefferson wrote to Madison essentially that an energetic government is always an oppressive one. 
It is to be remembered that the general government is not to be charged with the whole power of making and administering laws. Its jurisdiction is limited to certain enumerated objects. That comes from Federalist Number 14. This statement may come as a surprise to many of today's population. As has been discussed in a number of episodes, too many now view the federal government as an omnipotent power responsible for and authorized to do nearly anything. The question whether there are actually any practical constraints today is one full of disappointing answers. For some reason, where the United States Constitution is and was intended as a contract among the states, people, and their new federal government, many now advocate advocate for a living constitution, one that can be changed at the whim of those in power, where no one would advocate for such a philosophy of interpretation of any other contract. Who among us would ever sign a contract if the expectation was that at some later date it could be revised simply upon someone's decision that a change in circumstances required a change, despite whether the actual parties to the contract agreed to that change? Indeed, given that our founders focus on limited government, one of the specifically enumerated powers was due to the belief espoused by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 78 that such limitations were required by the depravity of human nature and the folly and wickedness of mankind. No honest argument can be made that our Constitution was intended to be living. Indeed, how could any limitation on governmental authority protect us from the urges of man if those in power can claim the document itself is changeable without consent of the governed, merely by someone claiming it to be so? It is derived from this unique acceptance by this new America and its founders that men were flawed, that they could be moved into evil through power that distinguished this new American era and our nation's first principles from earlier historic philosophers involved involved in earlier true democracy, where the likes of Plato and others of earlier eras believed in control of government by men through representation, itself a relatively new concept in their day, they also relied on an idealistic belief that special and good men would ultimately rise to leadership. Our founders had experienced otherwise, and realized that a true democracy only lasts as long as those in power can find a way to shift the rules in their favor. It was in recognition of man's imperfections that our government was structured to account for just that character. This is how individual liberty, personal responsibility, and limited government all play a role in our first principles. It also cannot be ignored that so much of what drove our founders was rooted in the Bible and in Judeo-Christian values. Related to a government of limited powers are other first principles of federalism, separation of powers, and representative government. In essence, each of these layers of our system exist as a continued check on the power of those we give power in our government. In other words, power was also to be constrained by dividing it among three separate but equal branches on the federal level and by separating powers between the federal government and the other levels of government from the states on down. In his farewell address as our nation's first president, George Washington reiterated the need for the unique separation of powers found in the American system. When he said this, A just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us of the truth of this position. The necessity of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing it it into different depositories and constituting each the guardian of the public will against the invasions by the others, has been evinced. But it was not just the general concept of liberty or a uniquely created system of separated powers that set America apart. 
It was an appreciation that with liberty comes the right to the fruits of one's own labor, to one's own property. Private property rights are another key first principle in the American founding. All too often through history, ownership was a benefit granted by the crown or some other ruler, something that could be taken from individuals with no recourse. The founders knew that if you could not keep what you earned, you would have no incentive to earn it in the first place. If the government can take from you at any time, you are not truly free. Contrary to many of today's critics of those who framed our nation, it was not selfishness or greed that led to a belief that private property rights must be respected and protected. James Madison made clear the importance of property in his writings in Federalist Number 54. It is sufficiently obvious that persons and property are the two great subjects on which governments are to act, and that the rights of persons and the rights of property are the objects for the protection of which government was instituted. These rights cannot well be separated. The personal right to acquire property, which is a natural right, gives to property when acquired a right to protection as a social right. It is from this understanding of the role of property in freedom that the concept of taxation without representation was an affront to freedom as our founders viewed it. And it is from this view of individual liberty that slavery was always an abomination of America's first principles. For if one must labor for another, one is clearly not free. We can find the founders' attempts to protect property rights in everything, from the restrictions on direct taxes, at least in the original version of the Constitution, a prohibition of export duties or interstate commerce taxes, to the Bill of Rights protections against searches and seizures of property and against quartering soldiers in private homes. Private property rights provide independence and also provide equality. Not equality of result, but equality of opportunity. And those rights were properly viewed by our founders as on equal footing with all other individual rights. For it was again James Madison who wrote, Government is instituted no less for the protection of property than of the persons of individuals. Indeed, even before the drafting of and debate surrounding ratification of our Constitution, those involved in America's founding understood the critical role that property rights play in liberty. For it was the Virginia Bill of Rights that provides that all men, quote, have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, end quote. This language should sound somewhat familiar, as it is an obvious precursor to the Declaration of Independence. Property, you see, is the means of preserving all other rights. Economic independence, especially independence from government, is necessary for freedom. Edmund Morgan explained this principle in The Birth of the Republic when he provided Widespread ownership of property is perhaps the most important single fact about Americans of the Revolutionary period. Standing on his own land, with a spade in hand and flintlock not far off, the American could look at his richest neighbor and laugh. On the other side of this importance of property ownership is that a Republican form of government is dependent on those seeking representation to have an investment in the choices upon which a vote is taken. It is for this reason that though not adopted, it was debated whether only property owners, those with something to lose, ought to have the right to vote. We all have different talents and abilities, and we should be free to use those for our own prosperity, and that prosperity is most often indicated by the private property we acquire through our lifetimes, property to which we have the right and to which the government has none without our consent. That is a foundational American principle. 
Perhaps the most touted first principle is equality. Unfortunately, at our founding, slavery was a black mark on that principle, and as we move into modern times, many in our society have shifted away from the unique equality recognized by our founders, and for which our country has continually strived, and mistakenly demanded equity. Equality and equity, those terms as used today, are not the same. Equality is defined as the state of being equal. We are all equal under the law. We are all equal in the opportunities available to us, but there is no natural state of equity. Equity is generally defined as fairness or justice, but the world is not always fair and just, and the results under an equitable law are not always equity. The equality embodied in the unique American system is that with which our, is that with which our creator created us all equally. From the statement that all men are created equal, found in the Declaration of Independence, to the equal protection of the law provided for in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, it is clear that equality refers to the state of all of us being equal, naturally, and under the law. It is not a guarantee of equal results. It is also key to understanding the equality we are actually guaranteed, with the connotation now attached to the term equity, which more and more is being used to suggest unequal application of the law in order to favor certain groups to seek to achieve more equity of results. Said another way, equal treatment does not always produce what someone may consider the equitable result. The reason is that we have liberty, liberty to choose to take advantage of the equal treatment we receive, or not, liberty to work hard, or not, liberty to decide to attend college or to take a different path with no guarantee which path would be most successful, but making sure it's our choice. When equality is included in America's first principles, it is equality under the law, equality of treatment regardless of class, wealth, education, or other distinctions that prior to the American experiment did not exist. In fact, it was those distinctions that dictated your favor under the law. Perhaps one cartoon comes to mind to demonstrate the key difference between equality that lays at the foundation of the United States and the equity many now claim to seek. Picture three children trying to look over the fence to watch a ball game. They are all different heights. The law gives them each a box at the same height, meaning that they can now all see over the fence, but it is much easier for the tallest child, who may not have needed the box at all. Equity, however, in today's parlance, would give the taller child a shorter box, and the shortest child the tallest box, to ensure all three children now stood at the same height. This may, on the surface, seem fair, but is it equitable? Being created equal does not mean we are the same. It means we all have the same opportunities and legal protections, but it does not mean that we can all equally succeed at the same things or in the same ways. Though the cartoon described about these children may draw many to say, why not give the taller box to the shortest child? Let's put it in another context. If these same three children are in a math class and one of them excels in the class, the other is an average student in the class, and one is failing, it would not comport with our principles of equality to give them all the same grade or even to provide for some grading curve that allows the failing child to succeed despite clearly not understanding the material. Though it could be argued perhaps more assistance, tutoring, or one-on-one teacher ch- time may be appropriate for the child that is struggling, that is not equality. And what happens if even with that assistance, the child is still failing? Equity would dictate somehow all three children still receive the same or similar grades. But equality and equal protection dictates, dictates the opposite. These examples are not perfect because the results in life are affected by innumerable factors, not all of which can be controlled. But where we do attempt to control life through the law, those laws are equally imposed on all of us, and adherence to the rule of law provides an added and special protection for our liberty and for the unique equality that exists in America.
Our founders formed a system based on the rule of law. By starting its entire inception via a written constitution, it was critical that laws be written and that laws only be passed by proper procedures, with those only granted authority to do so, and that such laws not infringe the inalienable rights granted to us by our Creator. No man is above the law. Unlike so many prior systems, there were not some elite class or members of a class or allegedly divine ruler who was above the law. Though it may not operate as it should in all instances today, especially as exposed by the ruling elite's power grabs during the COVID-19 pandemic, the law does bind us all, no matter our status. John Adams understood that a government where even the rulers must abide by the laws was not the norm. He wrote, In the earliest ages of the world, absolute monarchy seems to have been the universal form of government. Kings, and a few of their great counselors and captains, exercised a cruel tyranny over the people. He also identified how this new American system being founded was different because it was, in fact, an empire of laws. Similarly, in Federalist Number 62, James Madison described it this way, A government with unpredictable and arbitrary laws poisons the blessings of liberty itself. This statement may, may encapsulate why the rule of law is so critical. Without a system where even the lawmakers are bound by the laws they pass, and where the laws limit the laws that can be passed, those who govern us would control us at will. It is also the rule of law that protects minorities, for without all the individual rights set out in our Constitution and the limits on the government it created, the majority would simply dominate and control any minority. The rule of law protects us from one another and from our government, and it does so while also embodying the other first principles of individual liberty and equality. Alexander Hamilton wrote, There can be no truer principle than this, that every individual of the community at large has an equal right to the protection of government. And that protection extends to all, the majority as well as the minority. As Thomas Jefferson went on to explain, all too will bear in mind this sacred principle, that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will, to be rightful, must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. The concept that law and not men rule also recognizes yet again our founders' understanding that liberty cannot merely rest on entrusting rulers to do right by those they rule. Patrick Henry, among others, warned of any system that relied on the goodness of their rulers. Show me that age and country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of their rulers being good men without a consequent loss of liberty. As always, thank you for listening. Where we move further away from our first and founding principles, we jeopardize the one thing we all should treasure most, true liberty. Rather than a limited government, our governments are ever-expanding, and as they do so, more and more it appears that those who now make the rules often try not to subject themselves to them in contravention of the rule of law. Most notably, as the left primarily identifies crisis after crisis that is claimed to demand immediate action, we risk what H.L. Mencken warned us about. The urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Alexis de Tocqueville valued liberty much as our founders did, writing, I have only one passion, the love of liberty and human dignity. What appears to be disappearing today, however, is an understanding of the delicate foundation upon which liberty rests. 
Should any of our first principles falter, liberty likely falls with them. Next week, I will discuss the number of claimed emergencies now driving the agenda of the left. From climate change to the pandemic, when the left fails to enact the changes it desires using the appropriate rules to do so, and it seeks greater authority by claiming emergencies that demand immediate attention, it risks our liberty. But are any of these situations actually emergencies? And are we becoming more willing and complacent in allowing our governments to act beyond their given authority and outside of the rule of law to implement policies that are both unnecessary and unwise and that threaten the very foundations of our nation? Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share this podcast with others. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus hyphen veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2022.